Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. One of the oldest and most influential groups in Show Me State politics is the Missouri Farm Bureau. It's a group that often has a lot to say about how the Missouri General Assembly handles agriculture policy. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, Missouri Farm Bureau President Garrett Hawkins joins us to talk about the Farm Bureau's agenda and what it hopes to get done in the 2022 session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum, joining us in Jefferson City. She is St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us as our, our co-host today, he is St. Louis Public Radio's Rolla correspondent. I'm Jonathan All. And our special guest today, he is the president of the Missouri Farm Bureau. Garrett Hawkins. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're actually the second Missouri Farm Bureau president to be on our show. Your your predecessor was on the show to talk about Amendment 3 in 2020. But this is going to be more about the Missouri Farm Bureau, what it does, what its uh, agenda is. And before we get into that, um, I'm going to ask a very straightforward question. What is the Missouri Farm Bureau and what does it do? Well, I appreciate you starting there because that's always where I love to start and talking about the origin of Farm Bureau. We're the state's largest general farm organization. We were actually the first state Farm Bureau formed in, in the United States back in 1915. And so we've always taken great pride in the fact that so many ag leaders around the country have a connection back to Missouri. And, and in this case, the state's largest farm organization and the nation's largest farm organization has an origin and clear back here to to Missouri. And we started in 1915 because there was a need. Uh, There was a strong connection to university extension, and there was a need to to try to help farmers uh, come together to have a voice on policies that were affecting them and their communities and ultimately at the state level, and that's where it all started. Um, And it spread county by county, and that's truly how Farm Bureau gets its voice. Um, We're only as strong as our county Farm Bureaus. And so we have a presence in every county of the state, and we have over 143,000 members uh, as of this year, 34 years uh, of consecutive membership growth for us. And tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got involved in the Farm Bureau. You bet. So so my wife, Jennifer, and I and our three children, we farm at Appleton City. So we are basically uh, on the far west side of St. Clair County, right on the St. Clair and Bates County line. We are the third generation uh, to own and operate the farm in which uh, where we live today. We're primarily a beef cattle operation, but a few years ago we introduced sheep into our grazing rotation. 
my parents uh, farm just about a mile north of us. And in total, between our families, we're the fifth generation to be involved in production agriculture. So uh, I always love to say I married up. I married a, a dairy girl. My wife was a Jersey queen back in the day, uh, the Jersey breed. She showed dairy cattle. Her family continues to dairy down by Joplin. Um, but uh, we are very active in our community and 4-H. Our kids are very active there and just truly is a blessing to be involved in production agriculture. For me, though, my roots in Farm Bureau span back to youth programs. I actually got involved in Collegiate Farm Bureau as a freshman at then Southwest Missouri State University, had the chance to enter into the ambassador contest representing my county, St. Clair County, and had the chance to win that statewide competition my sophomore year in college and had the chance to represent Farm Bureau from a youth standpoint. Then I capped off the youth experience as a policy intern back in the day. And uh, that's where I fell in love with all things ag and farm and rural policy and had the chance to actually to work for the organization out of college, did that for 15 years, then served at the State Department of Ag. And during all those times, uh, had the chance finally to migrate home to the family farm. And, and that's truly uh, where my heart is. So kind of what are some of the core principles that the Missouri Farm Bureau believes in? How does that and how does that translate into public policy? Well, you bet. So, so, so Farm Bureau is a nonpartisan organization uh, focused on issues that affect our member families. And truly, the issues that we get involved in don't just affect our members, but affect all Missourians. And so, you know, I, I like to remind folks that as a grassroots organization, our policies come from, from the grassroots up. And we actually, at the state level, just finished our policy development process. It's a year-long process uh, that starts with conversations literally among our county farm bureaus. And we have a committee made up of grassroots members from around the state that essentially guide the process throughout the year. We call this committee the State Resolutions Committee. They meet in June. We have an open hearing and involve uh, invite state officials, federal officials, other organizations to talk about what issues they see that are hot or emerging that should be on our radar screens. That results in a questionnaire that goes out to all member families through our Show Me Missouri Farm Bureau magazine. Uh, county Farm Bureaus then gather at their annual meetings and discuss issues. Um, county boards also discuss issues. They then make recommendations to the State Resolutions Committee. The Resolutions Committee meets in the fall. They go through the entire policy book, literally that spans ag, uh, agritourism all the way to zoning issues and everything in between. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. They mark up the policy book, and then at our annual meeting in December, Voting delegates from across the state literally offer amendments, debate, discuss, and ultimately vote on the issues that are in our policy book that guide us in terms of the positions that we take here in Jefferson City and ultimately in Washington, D.C. It is an awesome process to see each year play out, and it truly reflects, I think, uh, the needs and uh, issues on the minds of rural Missourians. So how does the Missouri Farm Bureau get involved, if anything, in political campaigns? I know it was instrumental in repealing what was widely known as the Clean Missouri Redistricting System. Sure. So issues like Amendment 3, we actually ha have an arm within Farm Bureau, again, grassroots structured, uh, where we have a, a federal political action committee as well as a state 
uh, political action committee. But underneath those, we actually have at the regional level level committees that are formed by our grassroots members. They're the ones that if uh, that make the decisions if we're going to be involved in state senate races or federal congressional races. They make recommendations that work their way through the pack. So you'll see a common or hear a common theme, Sarah, throughout uh, this conversation that that Farm Bureau is grassroots up. And, and when it comes to ballot issues, just like Amendment 3, if we don't have specific policy, our board of directors works to to uh, interpret policy and, and the wishes of the grassroots members and then ultimately makes a recommendation whether we should whether we should get involved. And so it, it, it's it's a process that works and it reflects. Um, well, it works from an action standpoint because our members at the local level own the process and then ultimately have those conversations within their communities to help us get things done. Mr. Hawkins, if I can ask you a few questions about some of the legislative agenda items that the Farm Bureau has. And I'd like to start with one that I, I think is relatively simple, um, the agro-tourism. Uh, Farm Bureau wants uh, a more consistent and more prevalent uh, signing signage system to uh, attract people to agro-tourism uh, opportunities in Missouri. That seems really simple. It seems like it wouldn't cost that much, and it seems like it would benefit a lot of people. So what do you think might be the holdup on that? Well, that's a great question. And truly, as we look at agro-tourism, agro-tourism is one of the brightest hottest growing areas of agriculture and we're really proud of that and in fact missouri farm bureau was the first state to have an agritourism focused committee of grassroots members and so when you bring up signage that's an issue that we have long had conversations with missouri department of transportation to, to work through their long-standing statutes and regulations to try to figure out what I would characterize as some common sense, low cost ways for agritourism ventures to be able to to put up signage. And so those conversations are ongoing. But, you know, anytime that you're dealing with regulatory reform, <laughs> conversations aren't always easy. Fortunately, you know, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe has long been a supporter of agritourism and and uh, he has been involved and we expect him to continue to be. But I get so excited about agritourism and I love visiting uh some of our operations around the state. And last summer when we had our agritourism conference uh, in Rolla, actually, that was one of the key presentations was to talk about progress that we're making as these conversations continue to evolve on signage and how we can put in place some common sense measures to allow our people to advertise their really exciting business ventures. Does that require legislation or is that something that can be handled uh, in department? Well, we've been trying to focus in department, honestly, to to try to get the progress without pursuing legislation. I mean, clearly, uh, there have been some legislative measures that have been adopted, you know, through the years focused on agritourism. Um, I think there was one on liability, and we offer liability signs uh, that agritourism ventures can offer. But certainly, when it comes to this issue, we've been trying to work through through the department to, to make the progress that's needed. I'd like to ask about uh, initiative petition reform, um, and, and the Farm Bureau is interested in, in uh, changes to the way uh, petitions get to the ballot by requiring uh, a geographic dis uh, diversity of where the signatures come from. Well, you know, initiative petition reform ha has been addressed in our policy book for, for a number of years, and, and that's been because our members have been increasingly concerned uh, about just how often the frequency that our state constitution is is amended and, and 
quite frankly, the influence of out-of-state money in, in the process. And so that's why we have been engaged in the state capital as to measures to perhaps, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here, uh, uh, continue to improve the the integrity, uh, I guess, of the process. And so clearly, you know, we're proud that uh, the initiative petition process has a place and certainly Farm Bureau has supported that, but we also support measures that would make it, uh, that would raise the threshold, I guess you would say, for, for amending the constitution. Not making it impossible, but making it, uh, raising the bar to, to under, the, under the umbrella of improving the integrity of the overall process. Your, your policy, though, specifically says that, that there's some concern about the majority of the, the signatures coming from populated areas and not from a, a wide swath of the state. Doesn't that kind of go against the whole idea of one person, one vote? I don't think my signature on a petition living in Phelps County should be any more or less valuable than someone living in St. Louis or Kansas City. No, you're right, but we, but you're correct in that our policy and the issues being discussed in the state capitol would look at number of signatures gathered, you know, across all congressional districts, and that's something that that has been of interest to our members for sure. But I mean, I I don't want to harp on this too much, but doesn't that kind of just fly in the face of the whole idea of something that is a statewide issue that everybody in the state should vote on. I mean, the legislature would never say in order for a bill to pass, you have to have a certain number of votes from uh, certain districts so that that a bill couldn't pass unless different kinds of the states, <laughs> parts of the state were included. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just struggling to see how that fits in with the principles of democracy that that you know, that you'd have to require those signatures coming from certain parts of the state instead of just the majority of the people who live in the state. Well, I wouldn't just say certain parts of the state. We're talking about all of the state, in essence, when we talk about congressional districts. And I guess back to your point, if it's a, it's a, if it's a measure of statewide significance that all Missourians are going to be voted on, our members would argue that the more people that are engaged in the process and understanding and what's happening with the signature gathering process, that that makes a more informed voter ultimately if that issue makes the ballot. So it's more involvement from the beginning is how our members would see it. I'd like to switch to Grain Belt Express. This is a transmission line that has been proposed to cross the entire state. Um, last legislative session, there was an attempt uh, to try to uh, give counties more individual rights uh, to have regulation uh, and maybe even stop uh, certain uses of eminent domain because of the impact on farmers. Can you talk a little bit about Farm Bureau's position on that? You bet. This has been a priority for our organization for a number of years, along with Missouri Cattlemen's Association and individual landowners that are along the proposed route. You can really boil this down to this project is different in the sense that it is a merchant transmission line. And it took three attempts to ultimately get the power of eminent domain as it worked its way through the Public Service Commission. And, and ultimately, as our members had conversations with legislators, um, there's always been a, a conversation around what do we need to do in Missouri to add more teeth to, to our eminent domain statutes to make sure that essentially private entities don't have the power of eminent domain. You're talking about an awesome power 
when you're talk about, talking about the opportunity to condemn private property, and in this case, use it for, for private gain. And so what we've always asked for is for this discussion in the legislature and ultimately improvements and, and in the eminent domain statute. And, and ultimately now, when we see the Green New Deal being pieced apart, essentially, whether it's through executive action or now uh, we're seeing an attempt to pull more power to FERC and away from state authorities, our concern only increases about what this looks like down the road. And so private property routes are paramount. You know, you all ask about issues that are foundation or fundamental to Farm Bureau. Private property rights is one of those core issues that we have long worked on. And so, you know, it's one thing for uh, in this case, Grain Belt to work with individual landowners and reach an agreement. But when you cross that threshold of giving, uh, being granted the power of eminent domain and having the power to condemn someone's property in this case, um, that is of real concern uh, because of the nature of this product, uh, project. I have heard from some landowners that they feel that they're being bullied by the parent company, well, by a company that Grain Belt Express has hired to try to get people to sell so that eminent domain doesn't get to that, that they've been feeling bullied, harassed, and pressured uh, to sell. Have you heard any complaints like that? I mean, I've heard, uh, we have heard from landowner members uh, who have received the condemnation letters. And again, they're disheartened. They've been at this, having these conversations for six, seven years now uh, of trying to protect their property. And so ultimately, when they reach the point of receiving that condemnation letter in the mail, uh, it truly is that sinking feeling and realization that what is it going to take to try to to help? Um, so so yes, we have heard from several landowners, and that's why we're going to continue to have the conversation of an eminent domain reform in the state capital. That's why it's a priority issue for us yet again this year. And the uh, but ultimately, part of what you would want is legislation that would retain individual counties' rights to rule on these cases and to have more control over what happens at the county level. Well, that certainly has been been one of the options. Um, you know, from a grander standpoint, you know, I think it behooves all of us as we look at the future of energy production and transmission in the country that, you know, back in the day, and you all may remember this, uh, Jason, you may, you know, back with Kilo New London, if you remember that Supreme Court decision, that led to Missouri taking action uh, it was, let's see, 2005, 2006. It was 2006. I was actually part, I was one of <laughs> Phil Brooks's uh, minions covering that issue, believe it or yeah, not. I knew you would remember. Uh, you know, Missouri Farm Bureau was right in the middle of that. And at the time, you know, what Missouri enacted, our council at American Farm Bureau held up Missouri as having the gold standard for eminent domain protections for landowners. But the conversation has evolved now as energy production and transmission as these conversations unfold. And, and so it behooves us, you know, yes, we have the Grain Belt Express issue right in front of us that needs to be addressed. But we've got a broader issue here now, I think that is an opportunity for us to discuss as well. Can so, just one, one, yeah. one final thing on that. And, and can you maybe explain a little bit why the Farm Bureau thinks that when it comes to this issue, eminent domain and land use, that the county should be able to retain control, but when it comes to large livestock operations, counties shouldn't have the control and that needs to be deferred to the state level? 
because I mean, it, it, it seems it seems those two positions are in conflict with each other in terms of where the control over land and how it's used happens. Well, so when you talk about the siting of livestock operations, uh, the the mechanism by which some counties through the years ha have uh, tried to regulate livestock has been under the guise of a, health, a, of a health ordinance through the county health board, not through your county commission. And so what we have said uh, over and over again, that these decisions should be science-based and we have a regulatory framework at the, at the state level with the Department of Natural Resources uh, that allows for uh, regulators to look at each proposed livestock operation, uh, especially those that have to be permitted, right? Um, and, and so there is a robust mechanism in place. That, that's what's different. Um, in, in the case of siting of transmission lines, um, you know, the Public Service Commission will look at a number of issues, but you can't compare the two processes and say they're apples to apples. It's apples to oranges in our members' minds. Zooming out a little, what are some of the key goals and, and policy planks that the Missouri Farm Bureau is working on? So, so if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, categorize into two buckets, state right. and federal, because uh, there's important issues in Washington, D.C. that we're following as well. So at the state level, we've, we've covered eminent domain. Uh, there are some holdover issues, uh, I, I think, from, from last session, some unfinished business uh, that are ag-focused, rural-focused, one of those being renewal of uh, tax credits that are housed within the Department of Agriculture, more specifically within the Missouri Ag and Small Business Development Authority. Uh, those track, uh, tax credits have a proven track record in terms of their return on investment. And so that's one of the key issues that didn't get done. That's a priority issue for us early in the session to see if the legislature can get those renewed. Uh, so, so that's a big one. We've already covered um, initiative petition reform. So, so those are some of the, the things on our radar, but the big one uh, that truly there's so much excitement around is the opportunity to make some key investments, uh, particularly in broadband. You know, we are anxious to see Governor Parsons details uh, of his plan, but when you talk about an infusion of $400 million into broadband deployment, it is exciting in terms of moving the needle in connecting the state. You know, we come at it from the standpoint that as Farm Bureau, we're not tied to any providers per se. We represent the end user, our farmers at the farm gate who are the last to be served. Um, but we also take a holistic standpoint that for our farmers to be connected, ultimately, the communities have to be connected first. And, and we need strong broadband in our communities that ultimately can be deployed to the farm gate and ultimately across our farms as we incorporate precision agriculture technologies. And so, you know, you'll hear me say time and time again as I travel around the state and, and interact with policymakers that the connection between our farm and ranch families and rural communities truly is inseparable. Our farm and ranch families, for us to bring home the next generation, we have to have thriving communities, communities in which there's a strong small business presence where we have quality education and we have access to, to healthcare. I'm fortunate, I serve on our local hospital board, the hospital that my great uncle and aunt founded in 1935. We are the second smallest critical access hospital in the state, 12 beds. Telemedicine is our number one opportunity as we look at deploying an expanded array of services. And you know what our number one impediment to doing that is? Broadband. We have 
access to internet in Appleton. So, so our bandwidth isn't strong enough. We have the technology in-house today to do telemedicine, but we can't do it uh, at the quality that will uh, meet the needs of the provider and more importantly, the patient. And that's not even getting to telemedicine outside of Appleton to our rural and to our farm families. So let me give you an example. Uh, I had our administrator run a speed test here recently. We were at 45 down and nine up. And to do telemedicine, we need symmetrical 100 down, 100 up. And for our patients in the hospital, if they want to use their phone or, or computer, uh, we are at speeds of two down and 0.65 up, which essentially means you have no service from your hospital bed. If, so, if I could ask just yeah. on, on broadband, and I, I, everyone agrees that this is a huge issue. Um, in Phelps County, you know, talking to the Phelps County commissioners, they are frustrated because of the process that they have to go through to find someone who will provide service and that is approved to private service. Is there, in, in your in, in your advocacy on this issue, do you find that there are regulatory issues that are making it more difficult for counties to connect with providers who are willing to provide those speeds that you're talking about? You know, that's a great question. And, and that's why, you know, frankly, Jonathan, that's why in some areas, why we've seen electric co-ops get into to the business of providing that service uh, where other traditional providers haven't been. But I know these conversations aren't always easy. It's not just, you really captured well that the conversation is not just easy that, hey, the money's there, so automatically they're going to be providers that are knocking on our door wanting to provide service. County commissioners have to get aggressive in working through, whether it's regional planning commissions or the Office of Broadband here uh, that was established a few years ago and trying to rattle the chains to figure out who who is out there. You know, I've even had some interesting conversations with with providers who, um, you know, again, they may deploy wireless technology. It may not be fiber to home, but at this point, we're trying to figure out any and all options to get people connected and getting people to the table to recognize the opportunity in rural areas is part of the challenge. Now, in terms of regulatory impediments, I don't know. But I can tell you, we're always looking on the regulatory side of how we can improve mapping, how we can improve data collection so that people can make more informed decisions. So, you know, you kind of talked about the opportunity of, of money coming in. And so, you know, Missouri legislators are about to begin the task of allocating billions of dollars for the American Rescue Plan Act. Is the Farm Bureau looking at some of this money? You know, what are some of the plans to ask for? What would qualify for said funding? That's that's a great question. Actually, uh, we ask uh, representatives of the Department of Natural Resources, Missouri Department of Transportation, and Department of Economic Development to join us at our annual meeting a few weeks ago. And we did an afternoon panel discussion so that they could share with our members the opportunities that they see coming down the pike. And you're exactly right, Sarah, that we've got a legislative process to go through ultimately before those dollars are truly flowing out. But I wanted, we wanted our members to understand what opportunities their county commissions, their local mayors within the communities in their counties, uh, what opportunities that they're gonna be presented with and, and make sure that our members are aware of that and allow them or encourage them where the opportunity arises, where they can plug in and advocate for the needs, whether it's roads, bridges, wastewater, drinking water, uh, broadband. In many cases, this is a once in a generation opportunity 
And ultimately, these local conversations are going to be critical. The local folks know best what they need uh, in terms of priorities. And so that's been our focus. You know, we will be monitoring these discussions closely. You know, there may be opportunities, Sarah, we've had the chance to talk before about opportunities to potentially expand the footprint of the state fairgrounds. You know, I think there are some one-time opportunities as we look at these funds to, to make some sound investments that benefit for generations to come. We'll be right back after this quick break with Missouri Farm Bureau President Garrett Hawkins. And we're back on Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio's Sarah Kellogg and Jonathan All talking with Missouri Farm Bureau President Garrett Hawkins. Uh, right before we went to break, uh, you talked about the state fair, and I think that's a topic that Sarah has been very interested in. So I'm going to throw it back to her to ask a follow-up question on that. Yes, so it's so <laughs> funny you mentioned that. So yeah, last time we spoke, we talked about Missouri eyeing about 400 acres of land to expand the state fairgrounds. You know, I'm, I'm mostly just looking for a scoop, but, you know, but have you heard anything else about this acquisition since, you know, is it going to be on, on Governor Parsons' radar? I'm sure it is. Uh, but again, I can't speak for for his office by any means, but I can tell you all the ag groups, there's there's an excitement of trying to figure out the best way to do this and making sure that if it happens, that there's a plan in place that the State Fair Commission and the State Fair Foundation have really thought through it. You know, the conversations now involve uh, State Fair Community College in terms of what they may uh, want to use to grow some of their education uh, opportunities for hands-on education opportunities. And so we really see this as probably a one-time opportunity. The opportunity to to acquire acreage like this isn't going to happen probably again. And so it only makes sense that, that we have some some focused conversations about what the future of the fairgrounds could look like. And w- I can attest that I know that camping is always like the number one issue. Uh, having been at the Department of Ag, you know, the calls that come in about the interest in camping and never having enough camping spots, you know, there's a lot of opportunity as we think about the future of how we serve Missourians. You know, obviously the, the state fairgrounds does more than just house the 11 day fair. There are events there 365 days a year. So it's exciting to think about what access to these acres could ultimately mean uh, in the future in the form of economic contribution to the state. Do you think Missouri looking at kind of this billions and federal funding, the surplus kind of makes this purchase look more appealing? Oh, I'm sure it does. (laughs) It most definitely does when you have this opportunity. And, you know, I look at it like this, you know, whether you agree with the magnitude of the funds that are flowing to Missouri and other states or not, uh, the funds are coming and it truly is a once in a generation opportunity. And ultimately our kids and grandkids are paying for this, right? And so it behooves us to think about investments that make sense as we think about the future. And this is one of those that does excite me as we think about future generations and opportunities uh, there uh, from an economic standpoint for the state. So I saw that your organization put out a statement about the proposed Rock Island Trail as a state park. That was announced, I think, two or three weeks ago. It's been a big priority for trail enthusiasts throughout the the state for a long time. But it seems like your organization has some real misgivings about this entire idea. Could you elaborate on what your organization's position on this is? You bet. And the the Rock Island Trail proposal really from the Farm Bureau standpoint boils down to the concerns that have been expressed by our landowner members. And that's the issue of property rights. And ultimately it's about 
easements that were granted long, long ago for, for a railroad, uh, which has now been idle for many, many years, and that trail has grown up. And, and as conversations unfolded about potentially converting it to a trail, all landowners have asked is that their property rights be considered. And, and that's truly what has boiled down to Farm Bureau and why we've had longstanding policy opposed to that. And so, you know, we will be encouraging members to attend the public meetings that DNR will be hosting, I think, in three different communities along the, the route. I know DNR ha has signaled that they continue to be open to helping landowners with, with fencing and materials that are needed as they look at securing their property and addressing concerns that they have about liability ultimately in the future. But this issue hasn't gone away and it truly boils down to property rights and use of an easement that was originally granted for, for a railroad and now is being converted to a trail. So I also want to zoom out a little bit and talk about kind of the political dynamics that have changed maybe how Missouri Farm Bureau has acted. So you alluded to my like ancient status in Missouri political journalism. I've been around for this will be year 16 for me. And <laughs> hey, I'm not saying you're ancient. I know. It's, you're wise. it's very rare for a 37 year old to be considered an old timer. But, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. So like but one of the clear changes I've seen in Missouri politics is the complete disappearance of rural Democrats from the legislature. When I started, there were people like representatives Tom Shively and Paul Quinn and senators Barnett's and Schumeyer who had very different views about agriculture than, you know, maybe the Missouri Farm Bureau has. How does this affect agriculture policy, especially when the Democrats on agricultural committees are all from urban or suburban areas now? Well, you you raise a fascinating issue, and it's a, kind of a trip down memory lane, honestly, Jason, for me too, because I remember uh, those leaders in the legislature and some of the key issues that were discussed at the time. You know, what we've seen in Missouri really isn't any different than what we've seen truly across the country. You know, we still say that U.S. House Agriculture Committee is bipartisan, but in recent years, we've seen more partisanship in terms of how issues are, are handled. And so, you know, the issues that are on our members' minds, um, you know, we haven't shied away from those. And our members, you know, regardless of who's in office, we have these conversations, difficult or not. And so, you know, it, I don't know what the answer is, Jason, but truly you've tapped into, you know, what you've seen is, a, is an evolution uh, in terms of outstate Missouri, the issues that are on people's minds, and ultimately those who are elected. So we're about to enter year three, if we're in year three of the COVID-19 pandemic. How is the pandemic still impacting agriculture in Missouri? Well, it just continues to add a level of uncertainty, and, and truly uncertainty uh, we continue to see <laughs> a lot within the livestock sector and more specific to processing. You know, we still have supply chain issues in the form of processing plants not operating at full capacity because they have labor issues. Either they can't find labor or, or perhaps COVID-19 may be pulling some folks out of the workforce, but you know, it's not just a COVID-19 issue. We truly have had a labor issue. And so that's been the biggest issue that I've heard most about from members is, you know, you've seen the, the Biden administration recently 
they just announced in recent days actions to to go after meat packers per se uh, because of concerns that we've long had about market volatility and the pandemic the last few years has only exacerbated the problem uh, in a lot of cases particularly within the, the beef sector and so you know they're unfortunately aren't any silver bullets. And we're gonna actually talk about this issue as we go into American Farm Bureau annual meeting, as we continue to talk about how we improve transparency in livestock markets and the prices received by producers. So I'm anxious to engage uh, in that discussion, but, but you know, the pandemic is on people's minds, but at the same time, our members uh, continue to, to navigate and work through it. It's just the supply chain disruptions have been the biggest, the biggest headache. To, to wrap up our time today, um... I, let's say that we all sat down again and talked in June or July, and I know that the Farm Bureau has a very wide and diverse legislative agenda, but if one thing could happen during this legislative session that could make you say in June or July, yeah, it was a good legislative session for Missouri farmers, what would that one thing be? Well, it would, man, you're asking, can I, can I roll it all into an omnibus? <laughs> you no, can try, no. but I think. <laughs> oh, I'm teasing. Um, you know, if after six years we could secure some type of eminent domain reform, like that truly bolsters protections for, for Missouri landowners and, and provides some common sense as we think about the future, uh, when it comes to use of land, that would be fantastic. That would be a long time coming, you know, again, the issues like Masbada finishing up those unfinished business pieces would be, that's a huge priority, uh, dang, you're making it hard to narrow it down just to one because there are several items that we've been working on for several years. You know, ultimately, ultimately this broadband plan and getting a plan in place uh, that truly is going to move the needle for all of Missouri, uh, that would be a huge win and will be a huge win because I'm going to hedge that uh, it's going to get done in a way that truly uh, is going to be impactful. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. And for all of our stories, stlpr.org, Politically Speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jonathan, how can people follow you on Twitter? I am at Jonathan All. Sarah, how can people follow you on Twitter? I'm Sarah K. Kellogg, and that's Kellogg with two Gs. And I don't know if you personally are on Twitter, but I do believe the Missouri Farm Bureau does have a robust social media and web presence. How could people find out more about the Missouri Farm Bureau? Well, you can start by going to the one-stop shop, mofb.org. You can find all of the handles for our social media presence. You can also find uh, about a, out about our other priority issues, particularly at the federal level, climate, waters of the U.S., a lot of issues that are on Missourians' minds as well. So I would encourage your listeners, uh, take a peek and follow us on social media. Appreciate the time, guys. Thank you. Thanks, and Sarah. Thank you. And we appreciate your time as well. For, uh, until next time, so long. a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. 
All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.